Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast, and I am your host, Phil Coover. Today, we're going to jump straight into the content. We have a, an excellent featured guest, and we're doing this in the wake of the recent shootings in Florida. And sadly, this has become more of evergreen content than it is sparked by recent events. We're having Mike Verdon. He's the CEO of a strategic security consulting firm, the Lake Forest Group. Mike, uh, was initially a police officer and he was an agent with the United States Secret Service for 21 years, protecting the President, First Lady, and White House, as well as high-profile events such as the Olympics and the Super Bowl. He's also the Director of Security for the National Basketball Association and currently supports the NFL as its security representative in Chicago. The Lake Forest Group is also a private consulting firm uh, that you can hire for your purposes. But before we th uh, have Mike come on as the expert in strategic security. We're going to have one of my partners at the firm, Andy Annis, who's the managing principal of the firm. And Andy has a great perspective on this as an attorney who advises companies on uh, various issues as well as being an employer and, and business owner himself. So, Andy, thank you for, for coming on the podcast and for your time. And um, thank thanks you. for sharing your thoughts. So Andy, as, as an attorney who, who counsels businesses and a, as a business owner yourself, uh, just start just very broadly about how you approach the issue of security for, for your company and the companies that you counsel. It is certainly one of the issues that we are often very concerned with, but at the same time, we generally don't want to take a very high profile um, position with respect to, um, and usually for obvious reasons, uh, but primarily there is so much inherent conflict in what has to be done that we usually have difficulty trying to figure out what is necessary and what is appropriate, particularly in light of the recent events that you mentioned. And there is probably an enormous amount of overlap, and there's probably a great deal of concern that is common to each one of the different parties that we get involved with. And it's probably important that you also realize the scope of each particular party's responsibilities in this area. If we take real estate as an example, there's certainly the necessity to deal with the owner's perspective. There's the necessity to deal with the tenant's perspective, which many times I find that the tenants assume that the responsibility is with ownership or the landlord and they don't take what responsibilities they probably have seriously enough. And then there's the perspective of the tenant employer and whether the employer has a responsibility to deal with these issues. And there's probably even the necessity to consider the employee's own responsibility to deal with security in this day and age. And what should they be doing and what should we expect them to do? Properly figuring out that there are various different components to who might be responsible, the next concern, and this is an overlapping concern, but too often not necessarily put into focus, is what do we have to do? Who should be doing it is certainly the first question, but then what do we have to do? What is necessary? What is appropriate? Um, Mike is certainly going to talk about some of the things that are probably baseline necessary, maybe even beyond baseline necessary and appropriate these days. But at the same time, from a legal perspective, we have to ask, 
what is enough and what is appropriate, what is reasonable, what is prudent, and from whose perspective, and that's where we keep coming into the conflicts. A property owner's perspective is maybe to deal with the premises, the building, the, the property itself, not necessarily to deal with everybody's employees or every tenant's invitees, but they have some possible responsibility to do that, but maybe not to the same extent as every employer or every tenant in the building. Um, and maybe an employer has a different sense of responsibility depending on what type of business they're in. So we have to reconcile too often, gee, what do I need by way of a security plan for the building that we're in? Or what do I need by way of a security plan for the employees that I have in this particular building uh, as far as the tenant is concerned or the employer is concerned? And when we get down to that level, then the obvious questions that we always are struggling with is, do I do anything? Do I do enough? Okay, what do I have to do for a, uh, an appropriate level of security uh, in this day and age? Should I be worried about natural disasters? Uh, obviously, the things that we've had this last year and things that are going on in the East Coast, the hurricanes, the snowstorms, and things of that sort, yeah, there probably is a need for everybody that I've just mentioned to consider the need for some type of security awareness in connection with those types of natural disasters. Riots, we've seen this happen in the last couple of years in connection with some of the high-profile litigation that's happened. And that's led to a necessity for employers and tenants and property owners to be aware of the fact that um, we could have riots. We've recently, in the last couple of years, and potentially in the next year here in Chicago, have that realistic expectation again. We have certainly some high-profile cases that are expected to come down that could produce that kind of activity. Who should be responsible for having an appropriate security plan for those types of things? Should we expect that every single property owner have that type of a security plan and every single tenant have that type of security plan? It's one of the things to consider. Certainly, and we've seen this all too often, active shooters. So do we expect that as a reasonable, prudent person these days, we have active shooter programs? And who should have the active shooter program? Should a landlord of a building, a commercial building in downtown Chicago have an active shooter program? Should every single employer in the building have an active shooter program, every tenant? Or should they all have it? And things of that sort. 9-11 type of attacks, the Austin bombings are th certainly things. Should we even throw on the agenda, and this may sound strange, but it may not be that unrealistic. It happened in Hawaii. Should we be concerned with nuclear attacks? I'm old enough to remember back in the days in which we used to have drills in, in grade school in which we had to crawl under our desks, and you wonder whether that's going to become a necessity these days to start considering nuclear attacks as being an agenda item on a security plan. And then that leads to another common concern for all the parties that I'm talking about that we also have to deal with and struggle with, and that is who should be making these determinations? This is the one that gives me the most concern when I'm advising clients, and even when I'm looking at it from the perspective of a business owner or from the perspective of being an employer or a tenant. 
is it my responsibility as a layperson to determine what is the appropriate level of security that I should have as an employer, that I should have as a tenant, or that I should be advising my clients to have as property owners, et cetera? Or should I have an expert help me, or not even help me, but to describe and, dis and determine for me what is the baseline level of security that I have to have or I should have to make sure that I'm acting reasonably and prudently in connection with the security issues. That's the one that's probably the most difficult because what happens is that if you do nothing, you're certainly susceptible and subject to liability in any of the categories I'm talking about as an employer, as a tenant, as a property owner. If I do something, but it's never enough, then I'm also subject to potential liability. They're going to say, well, you obviously recognize that you should do something, but you didn't do enough, or you didn't take the advice of an expert, or you had an expert advise you, but you didn't take all of their advice and do everything that they told you to do, and therefore you're liable automatically because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. That becomes a concern, and that's becoming even more of a heightened concern these days in the climate of all the incidents that have happened in recent years and recent months. Because every single time we have one of those incidences, then we have a way to provoke the need for a response. And then it comes all the way back as to who's responsible for that response, as we said, and what is the response? What security measures should I have had in place? And then obviously the last problem that we have, and, and I know that Mike is not going to have the perfect answer to these issues, but what is, what is the expectation? Is it absolute? We can't make everybody absolute secure. We can't do it. But as soon as we get into this area and we start dealing with this area, that's the expectation is that it has to be sufficient to stop everything that we're talking about. And if it's not, if it does work as planned, then it's not even on anybody's radar screen, just it's expected. But if it's failed, if somehow all the security measures that in play are in place weren't sufficient to stop the shooter that came into an office or the bombing incidents that happened in, in Austin, then the finger pointing happens and then all of a sudden the liability issues. So it's a tough issue and it's becoming a more difficult issue in the climate that we have these days. And it's one that we know is out there, but too often we, we try to not avoid it, certainly. We can never avoid it. It's, it's far too important not to, but we try to take a very low profile about it because nobody really wants to deal with all of the ramifications of it and particularly the liabilities associated with it. Andy, thank you for those thoughts. Uh, before we go to Mike, I did want to ask you one question. Is One of the older adages in the law that most people are aware of uh, is that you don't always have a duty to take on an obligation. If you see someone lying sick next to the side of the road, you don't necessarily have a duty to help that person. But if you take on the duty to help some, that person, you have to do it reasonably and you can't do it negligently. Um, I think years ago, there was a, there was a sense or a feeling that you didn't, the question was you didn't necessarily have to take on a duty to protect a, a property from a criminal act because criminal acts weren't foreseeable, although there are nuances and variations, variations to that law. I'm, just, I'm oversimplifying it. Um, but what do you think about that? Do you think in this day and age with all of the security issues that we face, do you think that it's um, 
either the the legal duty has been uh, eroded a little bit to the point where these some of these criminal acts might become foresee, deemed foreseeable, or is there just a, a moral duty as a, an employer to consider these issues at least and to think through them about what you want to do? Excellent question, and it leads to a few different aspects of that problem. Yeah, the old law and the old common notion was I don't have to foresee technically legal activity or, or illegal activity or criminal activity. And um, I'm not responsible for something as far as security is concerned, as far as criminal activity is concerned, until it's happened and until there's a pattern of it, then I might end up in a position where I have to respond to it. Problem with that these days is that we have all too many events which would indicate that that's a plausible possibility these days. And it's a possibility for everybody. So I don't think that anybody, even if it could be in the most remote case, technically uh, defensible, can avoid dealing with security issues anymore. Not to mention, and I totally agree with this, it is a moral obligation. It is an obligation, and I'm going to expand it a little bit in the sense that I don't view it as an obligation of a property owner or a landlord, but I view it as an obligation of everyone. It's the property owner's obligation, surely, as to their column of responsibility, if you will. But it's also the responsibility of the tenant, and as I've said already, the employer, and even the employee. We, each and every one of us these days, have a responsibility to deal with our own security. And we have to be aware of the issues that could um, impact that, and that becomes our responsibility. So the old issues that you talked about, the old defenses, if you will, I think those have truly eroded, and I think it's good that they have eroded, but there's a detriment to that, too. And that is that if I recognize that there is a need for the security, then it becomes an expectation that that security has to be absolute that it has to be foolproof, that it has to be uh, applicable in every single situation and effective in every situation, and that becomes a problem. One aside, though, with that, and it does relate to this, and there is this ongoing issue, and in Illinois we're a little bit different than some other states, and it's the concealed carry issue. Uh, one of the arguments here is, do I have to foresee activity, and can I, um, do I have to, as an employer or as a tenant or as a property owner, do I have to assume that it could be better not to allow guns or to allow guns? And the statute in Illinois permits us to decide whether we're going to allow the premises to be um, concealed carry or not. And what some people did for the reason that you were talking about in your question, your hypothetical, is they took the position of being neutral and saying we're not going to take any position because if we took a position to say guns are not allowed, concealed carry is, is permissible in Illinois, so if we put a post and say guns are not allowed, we are taking an affirmative action in connection with that. We'd rather be neutral and not do anything. A little bit like your scenario about if I didn't know that there was criminal activity, can I just rely upon the defense of I didn't know and I didn't foresee any criminal activity so I'm safe from a liability perspective. Um, it's kind of a dangerous position, and in Illinois, unfortunately, there's no immunity from liability for making that decision one way or another, 
some states, I believe Texas, there is that immunity, but in Illinois they didn't do that. So that is an area that is a carryover of the old law that you're talking about and one that's a little bit dangerous. I have no idea whether it's better to allow people to defend themselves and have guns or to say that this is a gun-free zone and we don't want any guns and assume that no one is going to be there. I'll leave that to Mike to decide, but it's still the same dilemma that you mentioned. Andy, thanks a lot for your time and your thoughts. Mike, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We certainly have a lot of questions uh, that Andy has raised. And um, just again, Mike, you were the, an agent with the Secret Service for 21 years. Uh, you protected the president, the First Lady, the White House, um, the National Basketball Association, among many other items. And I was just, when we first wanted you on the show, I, you know, I asked you about the active shooter threat but uh, as, you, as you taught to me, that there are a lot more security issues that people should be aware of. Do you want to start by just telling everyone about security in general, how you, you and the Lake Forest Group approaches security? Well, thank you, Phil. Yeah, I did want to address the different types of uh, threats to be concerned about. Andy had touched upon that during his comments. The best way to categorize these threats, think of it in three different uh, areas, one being natural. Andy had mentioned like a weather event, for example. Here in the Midwest and out east, you have to worry about snow. Well, that's a threat. There needs to be some type of plan or preparation in response to that type of scenario. Another category of threat is intentional. And within that, that, that space, you're talking about things such as an active shooter or a robbery or you know, even, even internal theft, someone stealing from the company. So that's an internal threat. I'm sorry, an, an intentional threat. And then the, uh, the third category is accidental. Accidental could be your classic slip and fall. Uh, the, the more predominant type of accidental threat is like a power outage. But the point I'm making there is if you, if you step back at a 30,000 foot level and you think about how are we, how are we uh, prepared to deal with different types of threat, to include from the spectrum of something as serious as a weapon of mass destruction to something such as if the elevators don't work in the building. So are we prepared to deal with what we call all hazards? And if we are prepared to deal with that, what is our plan? What is our response to those types of incidents? And then how do we recover from those incidents? So when we talk threat, uh, and if you look at the Department of Homeland Security FEMA framework, it's all about emergency management. How do you manage that emergency? So talking today about a plan and about you know, firearms or any type of security-related incident, think of two major plans, P plan being the, the most predominant word there. It's really all about a plan, having some type of uh, you know, component in place to deal with any possible uh, situation. So you have your emergency management plan to deal with these different types of threats. You also have a security plan, and that kind of fits, it, it's kind of a concurrent with your emergency management plan. Your security plan, and Andy had talked about this in the quote, Andy, what's appropriate? So you have to devise your security plan, and Andy's right, it has to fit the culture of, uh, if, you're, if you're doing a security plan for, say, for a law office, it has to fit that culture. I mean, this type of business, you have a, a, a great deal of people coming and going, and most of the people that come into this space are unfamiliar with, with the building, they're unfamiliar with the, the, uh, uh, you know, the stairwells, the escape routes. If there is some type of signal over the PA system, 
they may not know what that means. If that means there's a fire or if it's something more serious. So your security plan is gonna be tailored to your environment. And I say your environment, it's the type of business, you know, so with using once again the law firm, people, they, doors are open, people come and go. You know, when you do work at things like a school, schools are getting better. You know, schools now, like when we were back in school, almost any door to the school was open. And now, uh, like when I go to my child's school, there's like one door to get in and there's a, there's a PA system and I walk into a, into a locked vestibule and I'm, and I'm in the suburbs. And I think uh, it's raised our awareness. Uh, what's happening in, our, happening in our world today has raised our awareness and it's really enhanced uh, our security and safety efforts because we're, we're reacting to real-world events. You, know, you now, Nowadays, if you were to go back just a couple of years ago, you, you weren't worried about a, a vehicle assault, someone driving up onto a sidewalk and, and uh, you know, running somebody over. You weren't worried about somebody up in a hotel room with a sniper's rifle shooting at uh, people attending a, an open-air concert. So. The best way to describe constructing a security plan is, is, is think about this. You think about the threat. I had talked about the different types of threats, natural, intentional, and accidental. Then you think about what is your vulnerability to those threats. So let's talk about the most, one of the most serious threats, an active assailant, a person with a firearm. So just look at where you work. Think about where you work. Think about how people can access that space. Could somebody walk in there with a firearm would they, would they be stopped? Could they go, go in, into that uh, location with, with no interaction with security or a reception desk? Is there a check-in process? Do you, need to, do you need to have a guest pass? All of those play into your determination if you're vulnerable to that specific threat. And once again, we could, we could right. list, I could easily list for you 100 different threats. And I would probably overlook hundred ones I didn't think about you like let's just say a hazardous spill let's say there's a chemical spill that's a threat and are you vulnerable to that threat because do you have the capability to to clean that up so the rest of your area doesn't get contaminated so the point to those two uh, examples is this what is your vulnerability to that threat and once you know the vulnerability to the threat then you can real, you can determine what type of security plan do we need to counter that threat and the other part of the formula is you have the threat itself, you have your vulnerability, or maybe you don't have a vulnerability. Maybe you do have a hazmat, uh, you know, uh, assets available to you. It could be from the Chicago Fire Department. It could be in-house. Uh, also, um, if you don't have that much of a vulnerability, it's not great consequences. Where I was getting is, is risk, risk is determined by this, by the threat by the vulnerability to that threat, and if it did occur, what would be the consequences? And so you can get into a quantitative type of formula, and you can numerically rate things, let's say one to 10. And so uh, one of the greatest threats would be some, an intentional threat, right? But if you're not, if you're not as vulnerable to, uh, to the threat because you do have a security plan, you do have security officers, and uh, a point that I'd like to make, it's not just about security people, it should be inclusive. Uh, to do this correctly, you know, everybody in that company or everybody in that office should have, um, be knowledgeable about just your, your policies, like a clean desk policy, a visitor management policy. So when someone comes to visit, they've been properly vetted. You know, what we see a, a lot of times with these uh, workplace violence incidents 
it starts with domestic violence. You know, you have some type of situation in the home. It could be an ex-spouse. It could be an ex-boyfriend, girlfriend. And the, the only place that they know that they can find this person, because they're always there, is the workplace. So um, they come to the workplace, and, and a lot of times this is where almost sadly on a daily basis you hear about a shooting in the workplace. And you'd be surprised how many of those workplace incidents are really home related. Hmm. So I'll go back to my, my risk analysis here, but so you talk about a threat, your vulnerability, and the consequences if that occurred. Obviously, human capital is the worst consequence, right? But you have to determine, okay, what's our greatest threats? And I, I left out one word, probability, too. And that's a really big word because you have to look at a little, little bit of a statistical analysis. If you're in a low crime area, Okay, we do works, work in a lot of different types of industries. If you're in a low crime area and there's no history of a frequency of serious crime, it's hard to justify, for example, an armed security person because you need to have some type of leverage and reasoning behind that. That being said, if you're in some urban environments, you can just pull your, your crime statistics they can easily tell you that's it's not the worst idea in the world to have armed security on the property. So what, where I'm going is there's a lot of dynamics at play. Andy talked about should you get a subject matter expert, you know, who, who's the right person to do it. I mean, subjectively, I think you should get somebody, obviously, who has the appropriate background and experience uh, to construct, whether it be emergency management or security. That being said, that's only half of the equation. The other half is to do this right, I don't care who that person is. They could be the greatest subject matter expert in the world when it comes to security. But this is a collaborative approach. So when you have a tailored plan to your, let's say, to your company, you're working with the people that, that are there every day, that understand the comings and goings of, of that business. They understand the operations. They understand the environment. They understand the personnel, and they understand what's also palatable. You know, you just can't come in there and say, okay, we want to have attack dogs, we, we want to construct a fence, right. we want, you know, gun turrets. I mean, I'm obviously being over the top, but my point is it has to be, it has to be uh, you know, feasible, but also what, what's more equally important is when I say collaborative, when you have people who work at that company that have input, you know, skin in the game to... Uh, what's being developed, it goes a long way. Instead of somebody just coming in like myself and saying, okay, because what I do is I benchmark. Being a, being a consultant, I've been in you, different types of venues. You know, like you had mentioned the NBA and the NFL, so I've done work in that arena, right? I've done work uh, for political events like the inaugurations and the conventions, but also, uh, you know, corporate offices, commercial properties, residential properties. There's, uh, there's a common thread with a lot of this. Even, you know, forget about scalability. The, the common thread is this access control. And even the building we're, we're in today, you have to check in in the lobby, and your name has to be on a list, and then you're given a, a guest pass, and then there's a turnstile. Then when I come up to your office, there's still, to get into, into the space, there's a card reader. So just think about what I just said. There's layers in place. You'd be surprised, right. you know, and, I think that what they're doing in this building is a good example. 
Could, could you do more? Of course you can always do more. But my point is, there's a baseline there. So if I were to like conduct an assessment at a building like this, or construct a plan at a building like this, um, I would start with that. I would start with access control. But Mike, even though there is um, a tremendous amount of commonality and access being one of the primary issues, there's also a tremendous amount of subjectivity. There is a different need if I'm in a building where we don't have quite the level of control from the building's perspective as far as entrance and access to the building. If I am, um, let's say, a divorce mediation uh, office and I have a C-class building with no protection and no security for the building, you're going to advise that particular user or that particular tenant quite differently than if there are maybe a, a more generic type of a user in the building here where there's a tremendous amount of a security already provided. And it becomes a necessity for each one of those particular individuals to kind of give some thought to their own security issues and for you to look at it individually, not just have one generic scope of uh, security plans for everybody. Am I correct? Correct. There's, there's several answers to that one question. It's based on being a consultant whom I'm under contract with to start. So like whom I'm obligated uh, to, to, let's say, go with the example of a security plan. So if a tenant in the building hires me to construct the plan, I still want to be able to integrate with the building plan. But first and foremost, I am going to design a plan specifically for that, that company. So let's say they have two floors in a 50-floor building. I'm going to design a security plan for those two floors. That being said, and we're going to make, once again, make it where it's appropriate based on all, all those other dynamics I'd already mentioned. But I, I said, that being said, I'm still going to, to understand what is in place uh, for the entire building. Back to our earliest comments, let's just say the property management firm has um, an emergency plan for the building. I still want to know what they're doing. So I'm kind of in sync with all that. I, I kind of pride myself in doing that. And also, I'm going to coordinate what I'm doing. If I'm doing an active shooter plan, for example, and I'm doing it here in the loop, I will coordinate what I'm doing with the Chicago Police Department. I want to make sure, because I have a law enforcement background, I think what's important is when you have somebody, I have a public sector background too with Secret Service and the Skokie, Illinois Police Department, I bring that to the engagement. And I want to using that as an example, so not, not just talking about myself. My point is, to do this right, um, even if you're working and you're doing a plan for two floors in a high-rise commercial building in the loop, that plan is not in a silo. That plan right. has to be coordinated and vetted. I don't want to, to, to construct uh, an active assailant plan for someone, and then I'm told by, by Chicago police, you know, we have this new notification capability. And here's another example. You can share a video feed with, with the Chicago Police Department. Now, people always, always get, I always get eyebrows raised on that. I'm not saying every video camera internally. I'm saying if you have some external cameras that you'd like to share with the police department, they have a partnership program in place that they've had for years. It's called CP3 that a lot of people don't know about. But my point there is you need to leverage all of the available resources at your disposal to do the, the maximum you can when it comes to constructing these plans. Yeah, from what I'm hearing from both Andy and you as you set this up is uh, is two things I'm taking away. Is One is that 
um, it's overwhelming when you think about all, when you sit down and you list and you think about all the different security threats that there are. And uh, the question is, where do you start? And I think with, what I'm coming away with is one, you have to do it thoughtfully. There is no one size fits all plan to, uh, to minimize threats is really what you're saying, Mike, is you have to really think. And the other thing I was going to say is everything has to be done thoughtfully. Uh, is you have to really think through each individual threat and where you are and who you are and what your um, your possible threats are. And so you have to do it thoughtfully and you have to do it. Um, the other thing is everyone's in this together. And so utilize all, you have to try to assimilate all available resources to, to work together to make uh, the strongest possible plan. It, it's, um, it seems like an enormous task. But to, to your point, it's an enormous task if you take it on by yourself. And that's why that word collaboration is really important. And um, the other word coordination, meaning even though like we're all in the private sector, but back to, you know, there's things from the public sector that should be pulled into your plan. There was one thing that also that Andy had mentioned about the, Andy used the word absolute. I did want to address that. There is no absolute because that's why you hear you hear terms like risk mitigation and we're very careful in uh, when we conduct an assessment for example or uh, because we don't use the word we don't even use the words recommendation because uh, we don't want someone to say from, from a legal standpoint hey they recommended you guys do this and you didn't do it so we're cognizant of that but you know legal eased aside what's important is there's no silver bullet right no matter what you do there's a human factor. There's no, there's no, you know, foolproof security plan. I mean, the White House has incursions, right? So, uh, my point is that I I used the term emergency management earlier. We're not preventing an emergency. We're just trying to manage the emergency. So I, I just want to be clear on that. No, I think that that's a a very important point to get across. Well, can you tell us any stories about when you've had to put a security plan into place? Yeah, I have a couple stories from my Secret Service, well, one from my Secret Service days, and it's about emergency management. And um, when I was on the President's detail, I was a rescue swimmer. And so my responsibility was when the, when the President would go on the water, we would follow his boat. And I worked with the Navy SEALs. And the policy was if the President fell in the water, and I guess, and the First Lady, and the first family. Mm. If they fell in the water, if we could see them, the Secret Service rescue swimmers would jump in and save them. If they went below the water, then it was up to the Navy SEALs. So that's, so we had a plan is one thing. So we were doing training uh, in the Atlantic Ocean, working with the SEALs and working with the Coast Guard. And we, what we were doing is water rescues. And if you ever heard uh, the term Stokes litter, just think of like a stretcher, basically the size of a stretcher with uh, a cable attached. And we were just lifting people from the water up into a helicopter, and then the helicopter would fly, fly the, uh, the victim to the nearest hospital. So we were going through training. Well, during the training, in, in the, we would have one of, one of the rescue swimmers play the role of the patient. Well, during the training, one of the cables broke on the Stokes litter. And to make a long wow. story short, uh, this, the person in the Stokes litter fell into the ocean face first, fell about 10 feet, but it was, it was a pretty uh, hard impact. So we went into a rescue role. So we went from a training scenario to a real world scenario 
in the blink of an eye. So what happened then was we actually we had an actual victim. We got that victim out of the water, put him on to the boat, and we brought him back to where it was called it was the president's compound. So we brought him to the president's compound, and then we uh, asked for a medevac to come to come pick up our victim. So now it's going once again. It's no longer training. It's an actual emergency. What we learned there was all the people involved in the training had parked their cars on the landing zone. Remember, it's the president's compound, so we had a helicopter landing zone on the property. But what the challenge was, we didn't have all the keys to the cars. It eventually worked out, but what we learned was we weren't prepared for an actual incident during our training. And so it actually delayed uh, the, the landing of the helicopter. So, and I was going to mention before that you know, we talk about training and planning and all this stuff. If you have an actual event, even something like an actual fire where you evacuate the building, you should review what happened. You should make sure that everything that, that had been planned, a lot of, uh, you know, companies will have fire wardens and they help direct people to the, to the stairwell. They'll also have people, uh, uh, searchers, they'll call them, floor searchers, and they'll walk through the office space to make sure everybody uh, properly evacuated. And one thing I didn't talk about was accountability. So we, we, we're saying all these different things about emergency evacuation, et cetera. A big thing with a business is to account for all their employees. And so that's really paramount. Once you are safely evacuated, you need to account for your people. And back to using the scenario of a law firm, you could have visitors in the space like we are today. And hey, did we get out? So it, there's that, that's, that's another thing to be concerned about when it comes to an emergency. Well, Mike, selfishly, I'm an enormous National Basketball Association NBA fan. Can you tell us a little bit about your time there and if any interesting incidents you want to share? Yeah, so I, was, I started in the NBA in 2004, and I bring up the year because that's the first year that LeBron James was in the NBA. Right. It was also the first year that Carmelo Anthony was in the NBA. And even as rookies, they made the Olympic team. And what was interesting about that was you had two rookies – on the Olympic team, and I, I would go to every practice, being the director of security. I was at every every uh, USA, the USA basketball team, they're practicing for the Olympics, so I'd go to every practice. And I can tell you, even in 2004, the two best players on the floor were Carmelo and LeBron James. And what was interesting was ever, the very first game of the Olympics, they were both on the bench. And so when the game started, uh, what I learned that day was an Olympics rule is you have to sit when you're on the bench in the Olympics. When you watch, you said you're a big NBA fan, yeah. you'll notice that they stand up, they walk around, they're kind of animated. And the, co the coach for the Olympic team was Larry Brown. He turned around and said, hey guys, you gotta sit on the bench. And Carmelo and LeBron said, it's the first time in our lives we haven't started the game. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but my, so my security um, uh, incident with, with that, actually with that team was we were in Istanbul, Turkey, and we were playing an exhibition game just prior to the Olympics. And we were at a nice hotel. We had all our security features in place. We actually had support from the government and the military. So it was definitely an armed camp, this hotel we were at. Uh, in another part of the city, a bomb went off. And there was some serious damage. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. So we, got, we woke the team up because you could hear the explosion. So we all met down like uh, in a conference room in the lobby. And most of the players wanted to leave. They wanted to, they wanted to go to the airport, and they, just want, they didn't want to leave to go back to the States. They wanted to leave and go, just leave Istanbul. 
and go somewhere else. And uh, we really had to calm them down. And I won't name names, we had to calm down some pretty big people. And the point is, we said we're not going to leave. And the reason, reason we weren't going to leave is the fact that we were already in a safe place. We, we, we kind of felt that the place we were, we were in was the safest place to be in that city at that time. And to leave there, to leave what we felt was you know, almost like a sanctuary, would, would expose us to unnecessary risk. And obviously they went along with that. But uh, it was interesting to educate non-security people that are amped up over, you know, uh, understandably so, over you know explosion. Sure. Thank you very much for keeping them safe. Unfortunately, you couldn't help them with the performance. I'm pretty sure we got a bronze medal instead of the gold that year. And you are we, correct. We lost to Puerto Rico. We got a bronze medal. I, I still remember losing to Puerto Rico. Um, I saw in, in your notes, uh, run, hide, fight. And I just wanted to know what that means and what we should know about it. So run, hide, fight was developed by the Department of Homeland Security. And I think they did a tremendous job because it's part of our American lexicon now. Just people instinctively know what run, hide, fight means. I think what's interesting with run, hide, fight is it's great. I, like I said, I'm complimentary of those terms because under duress, you can think about that. It's almost an instinct now. It's been almost ingrained in our minds hearing those three words. That being said, it's not one size fits all. And I'll give you an example. Uh, schools. Uh, at the grammar school level, you're not going to have probably half your student body fight an active assailant. So, it, it, you know, you can't always use that, that term and think, okay, if we just think of those three words, we're going to be okay. Um, I was interviewed on Fox News about the shooting uh, in Las Vegas at the concert. And they asked me the same question about run, hide, fight. They said, what should they have done? Well, I said, you know, it's not easy to run when you're in a location you're not familiar with. Like I said, it was a concert venue that people aren't familiar with, with, with the, uh, the layout. Also, you didn't know where the shots were coming from, so why would you run? And you didn't know if, the, if there was more than one shooter. This, mm -hmm. this sniper had an automatic weapon and he had put out a lot of rounds. So my point there is there's no, there's no right answer. There's no right answer. You, you really, it's really situational awareness. So run, hide, fight is good. It's really good, but there's a lot more that goes into it than, than just run, hide, fight. Mike, uh, focusing on the benefits of a, a solid emergency management plan, uh, what, what would that cover? So the best answer I can give you about emergency management and the plan itself, and I mentioned this earlier, was the framework that I use and I, I really recommend it to most professionals is there's four phases that the Department of Homeland Security has created that describe what goes into a holistic emergency management plan. The first phase is prevention mitigation. And when I say prevention mitigation, it goes back to my earlier comments about it's really everything you have from a security and safety standpoint to protect the property, the building, and the people. Examples would be things even at, such as an alarm system, uh, a camera system, uh, your card readers, but not just technology, even like uh, if, you do have, if you do have security people, even if there's a concierge service, if there's a check-in, the point there is those are all prevention mitigation pieces to um, really, and I use the word mitigation, to reducing the probability of some type of emergency. So that first, pre first phase is prevention mitigation. The second phase is preparedness. 
So what's preparedness? The best example is a fire drill. You're preparing, by doing that fire drill, you're preparing yourselves for an actual fire. Other examples of preparedness, active shooter training. So if there was an actual active shooter, through training, we can go back to the run, hide, fight uh, terms, you know, what would you do? And through training, you, you can learn the best possible, um, you know, action uh, under duress to, to, to an emergency. Uh, the third phase and the most important phase to an emergency is the response phase. So this is, this is like the events occurred, what, do you, what can you do? The way, way we break that down is, and it, it does kind of play on the back of the run, hide, fight, you have evacuation, right? You also have lockdown where you don't evacuate the building. There could be shots fired outside the building or a chemical spill, so why would you want to go outside? So you have evacuation, you have lockdown. You also have shelter in place, and it's different than lockdown. Lockdown is you just lock down all the doors, and you just like more or less just hunker down in, in your space and you know, wait, wait until the incident is over. Shelter in place is a mo more prolonged type of emergency. Back to if it's, if it's a serious weather event, or I had used the uh, example of a, of a chemical biological thing where you couldn't go outside into the environment. Do you have water? Do you have uh, you know food, et cetera, to really you know um, support your your staff for? Could be for several hours. It could be for for a couple days. You don't know. So that's that's shelter in place. Another thing is, I had mentioned evacuation. There's reverse evacuation. You could be outside and there could be some incident. And if you have a plan and people know the plan, they they respond back into the building. So the response thing is. You know, should I stay or should I go is, is what title I've used before. So that's how you respond to it. And it is, run, hide, fight is also a response. But with a plan, it's more detailed. So you have actually uh, identified specific safe rooms or you've identified specific evacuation routes. So it, it drills down a lot deeper than just saying run, hide, fight, even though that's kind of the overlying theme to a lot of this. So I'm talking about phases. I talked about prevention mitigation. I talked about preparedness. I talked about response. And the fourth one's recovery. And recovery is this. Recovery is waiting until everything is safe, right? It's make, you know, you can, you can do a code. Some codes are just a word like code clear. Uh, you, in a serious incident, you have a crime scene. So you have, to be, you have to be careful. You also have to be careful that you're making sure that, that this incident is over. You have an active shooter, you have to make sure that that, that incident is over. You, know, you just can't assume because you, you can't hear anything. And that goes back to a point I should make is the most important part of an emergency is communications. It's to be able to talk uh, internally among your employees and talk externally, let's say with first responders and a properly orchestrated plan allows that. We call it interoperability. So you have, you have the capability to be able to talk to, let's say, law enforcement. But so that recovery phase, you're, you're talking about um, you know, accountability too, making sure that all, all of your uh, employees are okay uh, post-incident. This is a th term we use, reunification, because with a serious incident, you're going to have family members, you're going to have friends, like if it happened here, calling the office and asking, hey, how's, how's John, you know, how's Mike, are they okay? And then 
to do it right, you have a re reunification location. It might, might be in the lobby of the building, but if you have a plan, it's been designated and you know about it. You could use your website to post, hey, everyone's safe. You, you could tweet out or put something on Facebook and say, we had a serious incident today, everybody's okay. You can meet them down at whatever. But you can see the intricacies that go into it, but that's the recovery part of it. And the recovery part could go, wet, could, could go months or even years beyond the incident. There's that psychological impact if there was some type of fatalities involved in that incident. So the recovery phase could be the same day or it could be a long time after the emergency. Yeah. So, Mike, recently one of our podcast guests was uh, David Moore with Equity Office, and he's in charge of the redevelopment of Willis Tower. And one of the things that landlords are doing right now is they're very um, interested in helping provide amenities to tenants. And so as a marketing ploy to, uh, to tenants, they try to say, well, hey, we're going to have a fitness center for you and all of these food options. Um, since people are so hyper aware of security risks, do you find that uh, costs, when, you can, when a company considers costs or a landlord or a building, um, now is, this, is having a security plan in place a way that uh, an employer or a building owner can set themselves apart from some of their competition? Yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. Now, once again, my opinion's based on, you know, it's, it's a subjective opinion based on, on the importance of security. Obviously, the, I'd look at it from an ethical standpoint and back to the people. It's, it's always about people. So that's where we start, you know, protecting the people that you're responsible for in the workplace. So that's, that's my, uh, you know, that's the genesis of how I go about looking, looking at these projects. That being said, uh, to get into the, the business side of the, the discussion, another word that we commonly use is brand. You know, we are about brand integrity. So if you did have a, and this is, this is more materialistic, but it does, it does come into play. If you had a serious incident in the workplace, what is that going to do to your business? Uh, Facebook just had, they had uh, an actual uh, th uh, theft of personal data. Their stock dropped yesterday dramatically. So that's probably a great current example of, uh, if you want to talk about cost, um, if that didn't happen, whatever cost you're paying for a security plan or emergency management plan is pennies compared to what's going to happen to your business if there is some type of serious security-related incident in the workplace. Mike, thank you so much uh, for giving us so much to think about. Thanks for sharing some of your stories. And uh, what's the best way people can reach you? Well, our website, which is www.lakeforestgroup.com, is one way. We have a very interactive website. We have a free resource library. Uh, we have at least one video up there right now. Also, my email is gmv at lakeforestgroup.com. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Further, 
subject to certain 